This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Good day and welcome to America Changed Forever. I'm your host, Jeff Pegues, reporting from London this week. Always wanted to say that. Having spent part of my childhood living in Europe, it's good to be back. London, a lot different for me now as an adult and a journalist. When I walk the streets of this beautiful city, I'm, I'm seeing it now in a different light. Still in the air, COVID. It's just that there are no mandates here and things seem like they're getting back to normal or rather a new normal. I have been watching a lot of news, really just interested in how the British are covering COVID. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, was just fined for violating the rules during the pandemic. That is a big story here. Should he resign? That's the question that a lot of people are asking, though no one really believes that he will resign, especially given the war in Ukraine right now, which is the story that really dominates the news here. And the images that they are seeing in Europe are the same images that you are seeing on CBS News in the United States. Evidence of war crimes. We're going to discuss COVID and the latest variants leading to positive tests for big names in Washington, but we're going to begin this episode discussing the continuing atrocities in Ukraine. Calls for war crimes prosecutions are only getting louder. Here is 60 Minutes correspondent Scott Pelley. God was hard to find on our visit to Kiev's northern suburbs, which Russia occupied for weeks. Behind St. Andrew's Church, there is a sandy trench, not quite full, of civilian residents of the town of Bucha. Ukraine stopped the Russians here, 45 minutes from the center of the capital city. The Russian retreat was so hasty, it seems there was no time to cover up the war crimes. President Zelensky visited Bucha two days before our interview. What did you see in Bucha? Death. Just death. Last Monday was the first time Zelensky saw with his own eyes what Russia has done in what Vladimir Putin calls the liberation of Ukraine. The day after our interview, we found civilian neighborhoods in Bucha Blocks and blocks, shelled and blasted with no purpose but terror. Bodies and parts of bodies lay in the streets, left out like trash, Zelensky told us. No one knows how many victims are still in their homes, yet to be found. Michael Scharf is the dean of Case Western Reserve School of Law. 
In 2008, he served as special assistant to the prosecutor of the Cambodia Genocide Tribunal. Michael, thanks for being with us. All right, so what we are seeing uh, in Ukraine are just unspeakable horror. Um, And it, these accounts of women being raped, women and children being killed. Um, It's almost hard to believe that this is happening in this day and age. Um, The Russians have denied uh, some of these accounts, but you see it with your own eyes. The pictures don't lie. There is a lot of talk about prosecuting for war crimes. Do you think it's going to happen? Well, Jeff, it's not like a constabulary or special forces are going to enter the Kremlin and grab Putin and haul him to the Hague to be prosecuted anytime soon. But I do think what we're going to see are the wheels of international criminal justice turn. There are going to be indictments probably as early as this summer. And once leaders like Putin are indicted, it has a very negative effect on their ability to stay in power. We've seen this with Slobodan Milosevic, the leader of Serbia, who was indicted by the Yugoslavia War Crimes Tribunal. It eroded his support. It made him a prisoner in his own country. And ultimately, he fell from power and was surrendered to the Hague for prosecution. We saw this with Charles Taylor, the president of Liberia, who was indicted by the special court for Sierra Leone, and he ultimately was transferred for trial. We saw it with al-Bashir, the leader of the Sudan, who thought that he could travel around Africa with impunity, despite the fact that he was indicted for genocide by the International Criminal Court. It eroded his support. He fell from power. He's in custody awaiting transfer to The Hague. So, you know, international justice is patient patient and persistent, and eventually it's going to catch up with Mr. Putin. You threw out a bunch of names there, but there was no one in that list uh, that has the... Uh, and there's some questions about this, obviously, after the Ukraine uh, invasion, but there, no one on that list has the military might that Putin has at his disposal, nor did they or do they uh, have the control over media as Vladimir Putin does, or the Russian people as Vladimir Putin does. This is a whole new level of trying to prosecute uh, war crimes, isn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely true, Jeff. But let's focus on what an indictment would mean for Mr. Putin. First of all, he can't travel. He can't go to the G7 meetings, the UN meetings. He can't go to any places in Europe, uh, North America, South America, Africa, because if he does, he will be arrested and transferred to The Hague. So he's now a prisoner in his own country. Then secondly, the economic sanctions that have been posed on Russia are choking that country. But there's always a risk that they will start to leak, that countries will start to become less sanguine about them, not if 
he is indicted for war crimes and there's a confirmation of the indictment and all of this stuff is spelled out by an international court. That will keep the sanctions on for a long, long time. And then just imagine a leader who, you know, even though he has control of the media, the messaging does get through to the Russian people. They're going to hear that their leader has been indicted by an international court. They're going to hear the crimes that he's been indicted for. Eventually, that's going to start to erode his power. And so this is, if nothing else, it is extraordinarily inconvenient for him. But I, I think in the long run, it, it will be the recipe for regime change. If you can get into some of the specifics, how does this process work? Who is gathering the evidence on the ground in Ukraine? All right. Well, this is extraordinary because everybody is gathering the evidence on the ground from the ordinary person who has an iPhone or um, a mobile phone with a video. There is something called the International Bar Association's app eyewitness to atrocity that has been passed around the Ukraine as it was in Syria and um, also in other places where there have been atrocities. What it does is it allows people to take videos with their phone, push a button, it's uploaded to the cloud. It is it has metadata that's tagged so that it is self-authenticating, which means a court of law can use it without somebody coming in to tell them where and when these videos were taken. And um, people are using this app widespread. But in addition to that, you've got the United States and other countries with satellites taking really clear pictures of before and after imagery of the worst kinds of atrocities, including what happened at that theater in Maripel, uh, where over 300 people, mostly children, were killed. Um, you've got you know, satellite photos of bodies littering the streets of Bucha. And the Russians say, oh, no, those were planted there after we pulled out. But we can see from the satellite images that they were there beforehand. And then you've got so many people who are getting on their cell phones and Zooms and they're talking to investigators all over the world, including an NGO that I co-founded, the Public International Law and Policy Group, who is currently doing um, hundreds of these Zoom interviews to get people to testify about what they're seeing, what's happening to their family, what they've witnessed. And those people can later testify in court or their testimony can be used. Uh, you've got lots of photos that people are taking. You've got physical evidence. The problem really, Jeff, is that there's so much evidence that it is going to overwhelm the scant resources of the International Criminal Court. So a week ago, I had breakfast in Washington, D.C. with with Fatou Bansouda, the former prosecutor of the ICC. And I asked her, how, how do you think they're going to handle this mountain of evidence that's coming in at such an accelerated pace? And she said the same thing happened to a lesser extent with the Sudan in the Darfur crisis. And what she did is she had lots of countries around the world lend criminal experts to the court on a temporary basis, and they paid for it. They call this secunding these experts. And these people were the first line of investigators that sifted through this mountain of evidence and accelerated the rate that the ICC could process it and then bring indictments. There has been, according to U.S. officials, credible, credible information that Russia's forces may have used a variety of riot control agents 
including tear gas mixed with chemical agents that would cause stronger symptoms to weaken and incapacitate entrenched Ukrainian fighters and civilians as part of its aggressive campaign to take Mariupol. How do you react to what you're hearing there? Jeff, we're hearing about so many horrible things. That's just one more. You know, we, we've heard about the kinds of munitions they're using, cluster munitions, which are unlawful and they're um, designed to hurt as many civilians as possible. Um, this one is basically a chemical weapon, and it's one that they perfected in Syria. And remember, you know, all the allegations of chemical warfare in Syria. Well, the Russians were involved in that, and now they're turning that on the population of Ukraine. Um, They're also using traditional weapons to target things that no military is allowed to target, namely schools, hospitals, orphanages, um, theaters full of civilians, as in Maripol, um, and other uh, civilian objects that are not necessary to fighting a war. What the Russians are doing is their strategy is to terrorize the population, to demoralize them so that they can try to put a puppet government in the Ukraine so that they can try to get massive people to leave the area of eastern Ukraine that they want to occupy and contain. And they're doing this through a designed campaign of war crimes. The war crimes here are not incidental like they are in every war. They are, in fact, the strategy of this war. It it just, every time I watch the news, whether it's here in Europe where I am right now or in the U.S., and you watch what's happening in Ukraine and you hear the accounts of what's happening, there's no other way of describing this as just barbaric. It is barbaric. But I'm wondering, is this just war? And are we just paying closer attention now? Or, you know, we've known in the past that the Russians have uh, carried out uh, war in this manner. So what has changed now? Just the amount of attention, the the pictures that we're seeing. Uh, what do you think is changing now? Well, in one respect, I would say we're back to square one with some of the worst atrocities that Russia committed during World War II. For example, remember those images of the people found in Bucha who were bound and shot in the back of the head, and about 300 of them were, were just dropped in a mass grave. To me, that had eerie echoes of something called the Katyn Forest Massacre, one of the worst atrocities in history. It happened during World War II in 1940. Uh, It was targeting Polish officers. And the Russians claimed that the Germans had done this. And they even tried to get the Germans indicted for that at the Nuremberg trial. But in the end, when the Soviet Union fell and the KGB files were opened, it turned out it was the Russians themselves that had orchestrated this horrible massacre. And the MO is exactly the same putting people, you know, um, binding their arms behind their back, shooting them one bullet in the back of their head. This is a Russian operation and they're doing it again. And I think that, you know, history was very unkind to them the first time, but this is part of their historic approach to warfare and they're doing it again. 
on a personal level, when you when you saw this unfolding, well, I'm wondering based on your knowledge, it, did you expect things to go this way based on their actions, the Russian actions in other parts of the world? Well, I mean, and to give you some background, so I started out my career as an attorney advisor at the U.S. State Department. I was on the team that built the Yugoslavia Tribunal. And um, I also, you know, during a sabbatical from my job as an academic, I was special assistant to the prosecutor of the Cambodia Tribunal. And when you think about, you know, some of these places like the Yugoslavia conflict and the killing fields of Cambodia and, and some of the other ones historically, I've, I've done work in Uganda where they had the Idi Amin massive killings um, and horrible things happen. <laughs> And, and unfortunately, there's a cycle of this. Um, there hasn't yet been a deterrent by the fact that we now have an international criminal court. And in part because the leaders like Putin think they can get away with it. And so, um, no, I, I wasn't completely surprised by this. But in some respect, it's happening closer to home. It's happening in Europe. It's happening to a country that's really large, 40 million people. It's happening to a country that is extraordinarily important to feeding the rest of the world. It's one of the major grain and corn producers for worldwide consumption. You know, and, and the Russians are being so cavalier about attacking this. One of the, the surprises was the Biden administration intercepted all the information and knew this was going to happen. And rather than trying to protect sources and methods, they went public. They said, Russia is about to do these things. And they spelled it all out. And a couple of weeks later, it is exactly what unfolded. And I think that's extraordinary. I think that was a very smart move of the Biden administration. It made it so that the Russians couldn't uh, use their false flag approach of saying, oh, the Ukrainians started this. The Ukrainians are full of Nazis. The Ukrainians are attacking Russians. No, it was very clear that this was all part of the master plan of Mr. Putin. Yeah. And, and you know, when when U.S. officials came out and, and as you noted, said, hey, they're going to do this. I remember thinking at the time, that, oh, this is the U.S. trying to deter these kinds of actions in Ukraine. There's no way that the Russians will do this kind of thing now that they know the world is watching. I, I was hopeful. Yeah, I was hopeful of that as well. But we were both wrong. And, and then the other interesting thing is the United States is very worried about some line that it's not exactly sure where it is, but it doesn't want to cross it. Um, and it's the line that will escalate Putin's response to using nuclear weapons to making this a third world war. And we've seen the U.S. tiptoe up to that line in terms of how much um, anti-tank artillery um, and other weapons, lethal weapons that we are providing the Ukrainians, but we won't provide them aircraft. And, and we blocked uh, Poland from uh, providing MiG aircraft to the Ukrainians, because if they provided that, there would be an air war with our fingerprints on it, and that might push us over the line. Then, you know, uh, President Biden said, he's a war criminal. He should fall from power and he should be indicted and sent to The Hague. And I was wondering, whoa, was that the smartest move with somebody that you're going to need to try to negotiate a 
end result here, you know, a peaceful resolution, because nobody is going to agree to peace if they think that in the end they're going to be prosecuted and, and spend the rest of their life in jail. But I think what happened is the United States in all of these situations has decided that um, Putin was bound and determined to do this and that we can't prevent it. We can't deter it. And so it's really about responding appropriately. And that that line is a very difficult one. You know, that they're tiptoeing up to it, um, but they're, they're so far managing that okay. I don't know if there is a scenario anymore where you can negotiate a peace agreement with a Russian government led by Vladimir Putin, given the alleged war crimes that we're discussing here. I mean, how do you, how do you sit down and talk peace with, with a regime that does those kinds of things? Well, and, and that's a great point, Jeff, because in the past, there have been these trades of justice for peace. You think about South Africa, all the horrible things that happened in the apartheid regime, but they made this agreement that they would have a truth commission. And if people admitted what they did, they wouldn't be prosecuted. And in return, they turned uh, power over to a majority government. Well, you're not going to be able to do that here. The scale of the atrocities, the allegations, the evidence is too clear. And so the, the end result is probably going to be, you know, some kind of a, a pullback to the eastern part of the Ukraine. Um, the Russians will continue to occupy the area from Crimea, including the land bridge through Maripol up into the, the um, other eastern regions. Um, and the Ukrainian government will continue to fight a simmering war at the edges. And this could go on a very, very long time. But in the end, you know, Russia is going to be choked economically. They are going to be paying a price well beyond, I think, what uh, Putin thought he would need to pay to successfully capture these areas. And it's not just Vladimir Putin. And this is the other thing that surprises me, saddens me is that what we're seeing on the ground in Ukraine, this is a, a system. This is These are tactics that they're using. It's not just a rogue unit of the Russian military. I mean, this is widespread stuff. And maybe I'm naive because I'm thinking there's got to be someone in the ranks who'll set, who says, no, stop, this is wrong. But it doesn't look like that's happening. Well, and in part, Russia has a very top-down approach to military hierarchies. So whereas the United States, we train our lieutenants and our captains in the field to be nimble, to improvise, to make command decisions, that's not how it's done in Russia, in part because they're afraid that if their generals, who they closely control, are not on the battlefield, that their troops are going to either, um, you know, just widespread, uh, leave the battlefield, meld in with the population, or even turn on higher ups. Um, and so that's why you're seeing so many generals dying uh, in this short period of time. It's been a month and already eight have been killed. And that's um, more than died in, in you know the 20 years that we were in Afghanistan, um, the, the long uh, war that Russia had in Chechnya, um, it's a very high rate of 
high command authorities being killed. Um, and the reason they're exposed is because the Russians, you know, really need to do this in order to keep their troops from, you know, just leaving. Michael Scharf, Dean of Case Western Reserve School of Law. Thanks for your time. Oh, Jeff, it's been a real pleasure. So what is Russia's endgame now in Ukraine? Putin's military has suffered losses and has at times looked defeated. But reports now suggest that the focus of the Russian military is in the eastern part of Ukraine. Dr. Kevin Generous is an associate professor at the National Defense University's Joint Forces Staff College in Norfolk, Virginia. He is a longtime national security analyst, consultant, and professor with experience in contemporary Russian politics and military issues. His comments are his personal perspectives and do not represent the policies of National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Kevin, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. What do you think is the end game here militarily in Ukraine for Russia? I think the end game is uh, it's we've already seen a change in uh, Putin's original strategy, as you referred to. Originally, he was looking to very quickly take over Ukraine and, and present NATO in the West with a fait accompli. First of all, he underestimated the Ukrainian government and the people's will to resist. The West's and NATO's response to that, which was exactly the opposite of his expectations. He also underestimated uh, the global response, the uh, international governmental organizations, the NGOs, the corporate response, the economic sanction regime that is being quickly put in place. He, they are actually trying to kick Russia out of the human, UN Human Rights Council, which is uh, very, very interesting. And there's talk about booting Russia from the G20 group. Russia got booted out of the G7 back in 2008 after they attacked Georgia. So he underestimated uh, the response. He also overestimated several things. One was the competence of his military forces, which uh, has put him in the situation where he needs to uh, resort to a different, not only a strategy, but different tactics. And he has to change his military objectives, which is instead of taking over the entire country. He's going to go after the eastern region, which is has a lot of Russian speakers. And quite frankly, he already had made incursions back in 2014, 2015 with the so-called um, <clears throat> Little Green Men, which were uh, Russian special forces, but also Russian private military contractors. And I'll talk a little bit about that after, if you'd like, the Wagner Group, which is getting a lot of uh, ink lately. So he underestimated and overestimated, and this put him in a very bad situation that now he has to go to plan B to consolidate the eastern part of the country, east of the Dnieper River, and also along Ukraine's Baltic coast, where all of Ukraine's natural resources are offshore. There are several possible outcomes to end the war. First of all, I think what he really wants is to, um, his truncated goals are now to secure the natural resources of Ukraine, which is why he is focused on not only the eastern part of the country where uh, his forces have had the greatest success and where he's already had uh, paramilitary forces in place for the last seven or eight years, um, but also the coast along the Black Sea. He took uh, Crimea seven or eight years ago, but he's now focusing on incorporating all of the Black Sea coast of Ukraine into uh, Russia. 
I think that is his end game. Now, why is he doing that? Because uh, even if Ukraine keeps fighting, there are lots of ways they can perhaps prevent Russia from exploiting those resources. But if Russia controls access to them, then that oil and gas is off the market. And that, of course, makes Russian oil and gas worth that much more. So uh, they're trying like crazy to control the coast so they can then claim as part of Russia's exclusive economic zone, which goes to the law of the sea treaty, they can exploit the resources under the water off the Black Sea. So that is one of his major, I think, ambitions in his truncated strategy. Well, so we're also hearing that Putin is trying to end the war in Ukraine by May. What do you make of those reports? He may not be interested in furthering the war, but the war is going to be interested in him. This would require uh, some cooperation on the part of the Ukrainian government to stop fighting. How does he stop the Ukrainian resistance from continuing to resist, assuming that they have some enough material supplies to continue the conflict? He really is not in control of that. Um, he can obliterate cities and he can uh, commit atrocities, which he's shown a perfect willingness to do. Um, but he can't kill everybody in Ukraine. So the only way for him to end the war is to probably have a negotiated settlement. And I think that is unlikely as long as Zelensky and the Ukrainians are willing to fight the long war. Fighting, fighting the long war is uh, not really uh, something that he would like to do. Um, that does not work in his favor to fight a long war for lots of different reasons, both internally and externally. So so what do you think about how the Biden administration has handled this situation uh, thus far? The, the, the statements that the president has made uh, are becoming more pointed in terms of their criticism of Vladimir Putin. Uh, the president has called him a war criminal. You know, he's made the kind of statements that, uh, in my view, will make it difficult for any sort of negotiations between the U.S. and, and Vladimir Putin going forward, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, the war crime accusations, uh, it is to some extent satisfying because you want to point out that, in fact, he is engaged in things that are clearly international crimes uh, against humanity. But do you push him into a corner by doing that? You, you have to be careful not to push somebody like Putin into a corner because he's going to come out swinging. Uh, I agree that does not uh, encourage a peaceful negotiation. But really, the negotiations are between Putin and Zelensky. And I think that should be the focus. The West, in my view, should provide Ukraine with the means to continue a long war if that's what they want to do. Whether NATO and the West will continue to provide that material support, I think the answer should be yes. I'm not sure over the long term whether we'll continue to do that. And of course, Putin is counting on that. He's counting on a very short attention span of the West and the Western publics, and that if he gets to a situation where he can present, based on his forces on the ground, what he wants to get out of the, the war, right, the truncated goals, the eastern Ukraine, then He's going to figure he, he can win. He can wait out the West. But the Ukrainians are a factor here. They're a, a factor he cannot control. And to some extent, we can't either. But if they're willing to continue to fight, we should, we should help them. 
Vladimir Zelensky, Ukraine's president, is looking like a real hero right now. The way he has managed messaging, managed Ukraine through this invasion. Um, what do you think his leadership has? Well, do you, do you see him as succeeding in terms of uh, putting pressure on the West to provide more resources? He, he continues to put pressure on Western leaders to help. He's constantly on television asking for assistance. Uh, and it looks like the message is getting through. Yes, um, he, has, he has done the messaging brilliantly. And uh, he is a very heroic figure, um, despite the fact you see him in lots of different places out in the open, uh, which is very brave considering he's got a target on his back. Putin has private military contractors, essentially hit teams, operating in Ukraine. And they have been there probably since before the war started to take out people like him who show resistance, leaders who show resistance. So he's a very, very brave fellow. His messaging is working. And as long as he continues to have access to the West through the media, and again, that's a big if, if as time goes on, this kind of fades from the, you know, the headlines and things like that. But as long as he can get an audience in the West, he's going to be able to keep that kind of public pressure on the West to continue to support Ukraine. And you talked about these efforts to assassinate Zelensky. Tell me about this Wagner group. A Wagner group is what is classified, I guess, in international circles as a private military and security company, or sometimes they're just called a PMC, a private military company. There are lots of them in the world. Um, the United States operates them, and we use them uh, in wartime like in Iraq and Afghanistan, to provide security for leaders and things like this. But the Wagner Group, which is not really a single group, but a network of companies, is different because they often engage in combat operations, in uh, torture. They do a number of things that are, in fact, war crimes. The beauty of this from Putin's perspective is that uh, he can say, well, you know, we're not really supporting them. And under Russian law, the Russian constitution, that kind of uh, private military contractors, mercenaries, uh, is illegal. So he can say, well, they're, you know, whatever, they're, whatever those people are doing out there, they're not associated with me. So he's, he thinks he has a fig leaf. But this Wagner group is, in fact, purportedly run by Yevgeny Prigozhin, which is a kind of a close confidant of Vladimir Putin. He's an interesting character. He started out, he's called Putin's chef because he was originally a caterer in the Kremlin and fed um, Putin a lot. But he is a close confidant. He's also purportedly the owner of the Internet Research Agency, which is Moscow's troll farm. So he is a very interesting figure. But the uh, Wagner Group really goes back to 2014, 2015. They're part of the little green men that took over the Crimea and then took over the Donbass region of Ukraine and have been operating there ever since. They're also active all over the world. They're incredibly active in Africa and in the Middle East. They're active in supporting Bashir al-Assad um, in the civil war. They're uh, operating in Libya. 
And they recently operated purportedly in Azerbaijan doing combat training and other security services. So they are very, very active and they are very, very deadly. Most of them are former military commandos, probably Russian special forces, Spetsnats. And they even import fighters from the Middle East, for example. There's been some reports that they're trying to bring in perhaps some jihadists or some Chechens who are very, very brutal in the way they operate. Um, And this is one reason why recently there have been these atrocities and these murders in Ukraine, Buka, for example, that certainly has the fingerprints on it of the Wagner Group. Very nasty bunch of people. All right, Dr. Kevin Generous, thanks for your time. Thank you very much, Jeff. This week, I traveled to London, also went to Spain. Both countries are taking different approaches to the pandemic currently. On the streets of London and in restaurants, most people don't seem to be wearing masks. Indoors in Madrid, I noticed that people were being asked to mask up. In fact, I was a few times when I entered restaurants And at home before I left, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tested positive for COVID, as did Attorney General Merrick Garland. Also, U.S. officials have now extended the travel mask mandate through May 3rd. Dr. Mel Herbert is a professor of emergency medicine. Mel, thanks for being with us. And as always, thanks for helping us make sense of it all. So, Mel, as I I mentioned, um, I'm spending some time here in Europe. And what I've noticed as I walk around here in London is that, you know, people um, aren't really wearing masks as much as uh, we have been in the U.S. Uh, you know, they're going to into pubs and restaurants and they don't have their masks on or in the, they're in stores. And, uh, you know, I'm sort of the outlier here, it feels like at times, because I'm wearing my mask when I go indoors. So it seems like things have changed here in the UK, but we still have all of these variants. Yeah, we do have a lot of variants, but we are definitely at a new stage of this pandemic. It it really does appear that, um, I'm crossing my fingers here, that we're coming towards the end here because you'll see that there is more variants. There's the BA2, which was more infectious than BA1 Omicron variant. Now you might be hearing about the XE variant, which is a combination of BA1 and BA2. But these appear to be, as in prior pandemics, a lot of the time, more infectious, but not necessarily more virulent. They're not necessarily more serious. So the recent bump that there's been in Europe, there has been an uptick in cases, but it went away very quickly and they're already coming down again. Um, We expect the same thing will happen here. And uh, the reason for this is in part because, particularly in Europe and in England, there is a very high vaccination rate with first, second dose and even third dose. Here in the US, we don't have the same amount of vaccinations, but we did such a poor job of vaccinations, everybody got infected with the prior Omicron variant. So there is still a lot of residual immunity from that. So although there is still this sort of discussion about the new variants and new cases, I think we need to start thinking about what really matters, and that is severe disease and hospitalization. And right now, we seem to have from prior infection and from the um, immunizations that we've had, a very low rate of severe disease and hospitalization. And that's why I think it's okay for us to 
be getting back to normal because this pandemic also has other public health effects and you can't stay masked and inside and away from other humans forever. And I think now is the time where we can cautiously start getting back to normal. Well, what should Americans make of what they've seen on the news recently about COVID in the United States? You have the attorney general uh, who tested positive for COVID. You have Nancy Pelosi. You have, uh, you know, some big names out there reminding people that, you know, it still feels like we're, we're in this pandemic. I mean, it, and, and it, it, you you get the sense that is this another phase? I know what you're saying is it's you know it's time to to get on with our lives. You didn't use the that term, but um, that's the sense that I'm getting. And and this though, as the World Health Organization says, it's added you know BA four and BA five sister variants of the original uh, Omicron variant. So, you know, it just, it just seems like there is, there should still be a level for concern. Yeah, this is, it's not over, um, by any stretch of the imagination and we could get a more serious variant, but, um, we've got to be a little bit careful about the reporting of these variants because there is going to be an endless number of variants. That's just what these viruses do. They're going to be continuously, you know, replicating and new variants are going to occur. And yes, it's true, we've had this big outbreak in Washington. A lot of famous people, a lot of famous politicians have been infected, but how many of those people have gotten sick and died? And the answer is basically none of them. And that's why things are different now. Uh, With vaccinations, with prior infection, we're seeing that this virus is still out there and it's still infecting people. And it's actually more infectious now than it's ever been. But it is not causing the big uptick in hospitalizations and severe disease and death as it has in prior waves. So Yes, particularly if you're immune compromised or particularly if there's somebody in your household that's immune compromised, you still should be very cautious about this. But for the rest of us, the question is how cautious, what does that mean? And I think we can get back to a more more normal existence. Every now and then you're going to see what is happening in some parts of the Northeast right now, where the sheer number of cases is so high that they're a bit concerned that there will be an uptick in hospitalizations and maybe we should be putting masks on again. That's very difficult for the general public to get their head around. Is it masks on or masks off right now? Uh, But uh, that's kind of what public health institutions are going to want to do. There are other public health institutions, though, that understand that they're not going to get people to comply with masking. Um, uh, Again, this has been on and off so many times, it's very difficult. But there will be outbreaks, particularly in certain populations, sometimes when there's waning immunity, where you'll see big uptakes. I think the real question is, where do we go with vaccinations in terms of this fourth dose? And right now, most experts are saying, like, we don't really need a fourth dose yet, but we probably will need a fourth dose of this vaccine at some point. And so I think um, we'll start thinking about this in terms of this is going to be an endemic disease. It's going to be there all the time. Um, and there'll be some outbreaks and it'll get worse at sometimes and a little bit better at others. And we'll probably get into a regimen of just like the flu shot, a yearly COVID vaccine that will provide sufficient immunity for the vast majority of people to not worry too much about getting sick. I was going to ask you about whether we settle into a pattern now where COVID-19 is like the flu. Yeah, it's it's getting there. It's not there yet. It's still much more serious than the flu. But 
again, with prior vaccination, with prior infection, it's getting to look a lot more like the flu. Now, we still have a lot of work to do on a worldwide basis. We need to get the entire world vaccinated. We do not want this replicating continuously out of control because that's just asking for trouble. So we should be doubling down on our efforts across the world to get the world vaccinated and to continue to do screening, to look for new variants of concern. Um, but you'll also probably see that it appears that there are many less cases than there probably are because here in the United States, for example, we're doing much less testing. And so we need to also shift our focus from what the individual number of tests are positive in a day and do more of this sort of sewerage testing that um, we're getting quite good at. We look at entire populations. We see how much uh, virus is out there. And they, the news from that right now is actually pretty good. We're not seeing anything like the surge we had even a few months ago. There's a little bump but it's nothing like it was. I do enjoy hearing you. You know, we've talked numerous times over the last year on this program. I enjoy hearing your optimism about how things are going with this pandemic. Yeah, I'm feeling actually uh, pretty good about it. I'm feeling like um, finally this virus appears to be uh, acting like pandemics in the past. As I say, they tend to get more infectious, but they tend to get less virulent. And as people have been infected and now with vaccinations, uh, the hospitalization rates and the death rates are continuing to go down. There will, I'll say it again, be little bumps in the road. But if we continue on this path, I think we're getting closer and closer to normality. As you're seeing in England, as we're seeing here now, I go into uh, Ralph's, the big supermarket chain here, one of the big supermarket chains, and I see very few people with masks. And I see some people with masks. And that's the way it's going to be, I think, probably uh, for the rest of our lives. I think that there'll be people that um, are higher risk that are going to want to wear a mask or they have a different threshold about their anxiety about this. So there'll be some people with masks and some people without. And this has been something that has become part of the culture in many Asian countries. And I think that's about to become our culture. Um, and as long as we, when things, if things get bad, are able to sort of crank up some public health measures, I think we're really getting to a place where we can see the end of this in the coming months. And maybe by next year, things will feel a lot, lot better. Well, and as I travel through Europe, uh, I went from uh, the UK to Spain, where I noticed that there were mask mandates in place, and um, and and I thought that was interesting. And still, as you travel, uh, and it depends on what country you're going into, there are you know you have to put your passport into the system. Um, they ask you to do it online before you board the flight, and then show. Uh, proof of vaccination status, as well as a negative test, which I just got here in the UK, which was very easy to do. It sounds like a lot of work. And it, it was, you know, I was a little concerned before I traveled, making sure that I checked all the boxes and it's worked out. Um, but I suspect in the coming months, perhaps, and, and what do you think about this? We're going to see some changes in, in travel as well. Yeah, you know, every hospital system, every public health system has different thresholds for when you can take the masks off and when you can allow travel without masks and when you should do testing and not do testing. And it's a dizzying array and it's very complicated because there is no one global standard. So you'll see that um, if you're traveling to one part of the world, you still might have to get tested and uh, you might have to show full vaccination sta status. And if you're going to another part of the world, that's not true. And it's changing over time. So my 
frankly, I'm going to Australia in uh, the next few weeks and then I'm going to Europe uh, next month. My biggest anxiety is not about whether I'll be exposed to the virus. I know I'm going to get exposed to the virus. My biggest anxiety is am I going to get stuck in a country because I didn't follow all the rules? That was my concern too. <laughs> exactly. um, and that's a real thing. It, it's very complicated, but this will get better over time. Again, if the virus continues on the current trend, then I think over time more and more public health institutions will feel more and more comfortable about relaxing uh, some of these restrictions. As long as there's the hospital capacity, then um, I think you'll see these restrictions continue to go down, particularly over the summer. Now, what happens when it gets cooler uh, towards the end of the year will really depend on the variants and continued vaccination. The good news that I've seen recently about these discussion about these new variants is that there's been an uptick in people getting vaccinated. If you have two or three doses, you are very, very well protected. And that should be the message over and over again. The virus hasn't gone away. The virus is going to be with us for a very long time, probably the rest of our lives. But if you are fully vaccinated, just like if you're fully vaccinated for tetanus, um, you're so protected that you can go about your normal activities for the vast majority of people. And what about that booster for people over 50? Yeah, that's been very controversial, actually. So that comes from data out of Israel, where they gave a fourth dose. And it can be very confusing because it is true that over time, you your antibody level starts to drop. And if that antibody level starts to drop, then your risk of becoming infected and symptomatic goes up. But again, that's why we really need to think about serious disease because serious disease and death is not so related to your antibody levels, but a thing called your T cells. And that level of immunity doesn't appear to have waned very much at all. So um, if you look at that Israeli study, although it was suggested that uh, there was waning immunity, there probably wasn't because the people who got three doses tended to be in a more uh, impoverished area with less healthcare. The people who got four doses tend to be richer with better healthcare. And if you can pull that out, it looks like there wasn't much difference. That's why the European public health agencies, the equivalent of their CDC, has said, we're actually not suggesting that you get a fourth dose right now. If you are at the extremes of age, if you're over the age of 80 or 75, if you've got immune compromise, then a fourth dose might be reasonable. But um, right now, it doesn't appear to have waned enough for us to get vaccinated. That's why I think this will end up becoming probably a yearly vaccine. I'm an example. I'm 57. I've had three doses. I have no other significant medical problems. I'm actually not planning on getting a fourth dose right now. I'm just waiting for more data to see if it's really required. But right now, it appears, um, and I'm five months out from my third dose, that um even though my antibody level might be low, and then even though I might get infected, my probability of getting severe disease is actually quite, quite small. Mm, all right. So I understand what you're uh, telling us to do or uh, what uh, you're ad advising people that might they might want to consider uh, going ahead or moving ahead, sorry. Um, and I wanted to get your assessment of testing in the U.S. because as I travel through Europe and trying to tick all these boxes before I board a plane, it's fairly easy to get a test. Um, it is a painless process that takes, takes just minutes here in the U.K. It was very easy to find a testing center, um, got the results within minutes. How are we doing in the U.S.? Well, the funding for the testing has uh, been an issue for free testing. Um, 
And then it, we also have to talk about what kind of tests. Um, here in the US, uh, it's pretty easy now to get an antigen test. Um, the government handed out, I think it was four per household and then another four per household. So testing is still quite important um, for certain subsets of patients. If you are uh, immune compromised, for example, um, you would want to know that people coming into your sphere have been tested if they've got any symptoms at all. So that might be a reasonable thing. If you're having a large gathering, it might still be reasonable indoors to require some antigen testing, which again can be quite quick. But these, uh, I think the testing needs to move more to very specific sort of circumstances. I don't think mass testing all the time is uh, required any longer. I think it's more specific. It should be targeted. Um, and these antigen tests too, we also have to understand that they are not perfect, particularly for the latest variants, that the antigen tests probably don't pick up um, this virus as well as it used to. So you probably have to have a pretty high viral load to get a positive test. And that means you're probably infectious. So again, I would talk to those people who are, you know, if you're about to go into a nursing home or with somebody who's got um, immune compromise and you've got symptoms, don't go, even if your test is negative, because the tests are not perfect. They are useful uh, in certain circumstances. But I think you'll see um, that that again, the public health institutions are going to require less testing and we're going to move into a phase where we do that sort of sewage screening. We're screening specifically for particular variants, but it's not inappropriate at the, this stage for testing as a number to start to go down. Again, because why are we doing that? If everybody or if the vast majority of people who are vaccinated and had prior infection are really well protected, then do we really need to do the amount of testing we needed to do before? I think the answer to that is we don't. Dr. Mel Herbert, thank you. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure. That is this week's America Change Forever. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. You can download and review this podcast, check your local listing to see when the show airs on your favorite radio station, and you can listen every Saturday on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.